passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, The word of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful servant, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some here who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught, ba- who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today we live in a culture that pushes constant pressure on us to conform, to fit in, to be like everyone else. This comes from every single angle against us. And if we don't conform, if we don't fit into this pressure, then we are labeled with hate. We are labeled intolerant, bigot, ignorant, old-fashioned, and more. And we might begin to think that, well, this is a relatively new problem for us, but it's not. This is a problem that the church has faced from its very inception, this pressure to conform instead of be faithful. Throughout church history, churches have faced this pressure. Some churches have responded with faithfulness. Other churches have responded in compromise And many more have responded in a mixture of both faithfulness and compromise. And maybe you felt this pressure to conform. Maybe you look at society and what they're trying to tell us. And maybe you're wondering, well, is the church wrong after all? I know I'm just going to be honest. I've felt this pressure from time to time, this pressure to conform. Maybe you feel that pressure then again, maybe you don't feel that pressure. And that can be just as dangerous because maybe you've conformed in just a different way. Our culture, from every angle, places pressure on us to conform. But the good news of this passage that we just read is that it has much to say on this topic. As we uh, mentioned last week, for the next three weeks, we're going to be going through some of the letters to churches in Revelation. And Revelation, it starts with three, uh, with the first three chapters, really focusing on seven different letters to various churches in Asia Minor. And I'm really excited for this passage or today, as well as for these three weeks, because believe it or not, I think that it has a lot to say to us this morning. There's a lot of similarities, increasing similarities between our context today, as well as with the first century context, especially this morning's passage. It talks a lot about the cultural temperature that we find ourselves in, this pressure that we feel coming from all around us. 
And that's what Jesus' letter to the church in Pergamum is about. This morning, as we explore this letter, it's going to be real simple. We're going to look at at three parts to this letter. First, we're going to look at Jesus' commendation to the church. After that, we're going to look at Jesus' confrontation with the church. And then finally, a call to action for the church. That's our roadmap this morning as we are exploring this passage. But I think before we get started, it's important for us to, to recognize Revelation as a whole and understand this book as a whole. And when we talk about Revelation in the church, I think oftentimes there are, there are two extremes that most of us will fall into. First of all, there's the extreme that says, uh, Revelation is probably the only book of the Bible that I find interesting. It's the only book of the Bible that I enjoy reading. Uh, I, I like looking at the end times prophecies and, and seeing what's coming, try to matching up all of these different things with what's happening in our culture. I'm going to be honest, when I was a young Christian, uh, that's the camp that I was in. I, I like science fiction, and so I, I felt like it was a good compromise. I was still reading the Bible, and, and I was getting a little bit of science fiction uh, in my reading of the Bible. Of course, neglecting the rest of Scripture, focusing in an unhealthy amount on one part of the Bible is not good for our spiritual growth. That's where the other extreme comes in, and I, I've felt this pressure as well, this, this pressure to just ignore it. Just, I, I don't understand it. I, it talks about weird stuff. I don't want to be one of those people who's nitpicking every verses, and so I'm just going to ignore it. I've gone through that phase as well. Again, not a healthy approach to a book of the Bible that reveals to us more of who God is. That reveals to us what God is like and gives us confidence in his character. So what do we know about the book of Revelation? Well, first of all, we know that its author is the Apostle John. John, the same guy who wrote the Gospel of John, as well as 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. He wrote this book at the end of his life while he was exiled onto the island of Patmos. And that took place near the end of the first century. Now, the end of the first century is a unique time in church history because it's the beginning of when hostility towards the gospel begins to increase. The church was growing throughout the Roman Empire, and as it was growing, especially in pagan Roman areas, they began to feel this hostility, this pressure to conform, this pressure to give up certain truths of Scripture. You see, the rest of culture was feeling threatened by this Jewish sect that was attracting a number of Gentiles. And so people responded with hostility. They responded with persecution. And and sometimes, in very rare cases, they responded even with killing. That's the context of, of when the book of Revelation was written. Now, the book of Revelation is what we call apocalyptic literature, and many of us have probably heard of the the concept of the apocalypse, talking about the end of time. Uh, But apocalyptic literature is a little different than the apocalypse. It was a pretty common, popular uh, way of writing in the first century for Jewish people, and actually in the centuries leading up to the first century. And, And what apocalyptic literature does is it doesn't predict the future as much as it does as it reveals what's happening currently. Let me, let me put that another way. Uh, the purpose of apocalyptic literature, including re- uh, Revelation, is not primarily to predict the future, to say what's going to happen in the future. The primary purpose of Revelation and apocalyptic literature is to take current events, take, take what's going on right now in our culture, and to unveil them, to look at them as God sees them. 
That's what the book of Revelation does. That's why there's so much in Revelation about Babylon. What John is doing is he's reaching back in time, and he is looking at Rome, the most powerful nation in the world of that day, and he's looking at it in the same way that he would look at Babylon. He refers to Rome as Babylon, and he wants people to be very clear that conforming to the Roman Empire would be just like conforming to the Babylonian Empire, the arch enemy of the people of God in the Old Testament. He wants the people to be clear that the Roman Empire is opposed to God. It is opposed to his people just as Babylon once was, but also at the same time, he wants us to be clear. He wants his readers to be clear that God will prevail. In the midst of what seems to be insurmountable odds of the the pressure of the Roman Empire, God will prevail in the same way that he prevailed over the Babylonian Empire. It's almost as John is saying to Rome, he's saying, you are not in charge. You will not have the final say. God is still king. When we talk about apocalyptic literature, when we talk about the book of Revelation, I think a helpful way of looking at it is imagine that you're looking at a window. And this window has vertical blinds. Now, those vertical blinds are closed at a 45-degree angle, okay? So if they're closed at a 45-degree angle and you're looking straight ahead at those blinds, what are you going to see? Well, you're just going to see the blinds. It's going to look for all intents and purposes that the blinds are closed. But imagine that you take a step to the side, 45 degrees, and now you can begin to see through those blinds. And that's what apocalyptic literature does. That's what revelation does. It it takes what seems to be the only picture that we can see and it moves to the side and says, let's get a different perspective on this. Let's look at this from God's perspective and we can see what's truly going on here. That's why revelation has so much to say to us today. It's not primarily predictive as much as it is revelatory of what is happening today. It gives us the glasses to see the significance of the things that are happening to us and around us from God's perspective. The book of Revelation gives us the glasses to understand the significance of the shooting in Tennessee that took place this past week. It gives us the glasses to understand this Planned Parenthood tragedy that took place, that was discovered this past week. It gives us the glasses to understand the significance of the Supreme Court decision, to understand the significance of the Confederate flag controversy. All of that is what the book of Revelation is trying to do to us, to understand what is happening in our culture. You see, just as in the first century today, we live in the Babylonian Empire. We live in the Babylonian Empire, just as they once lived in the Roman Empire. There is always a Babylon in the story of God, and it's always the great antagonist in the story of God. The name may change, its presence will not. Its severity may change, but its opposition to the gospel will not. I love the way one theologian puts it. He reminds us of our true loyalties. They're not to Rome. They're not to the United States. They are to Christ and his kingdom. He says this, America may be the best Babylon in history, but she is still Babylon. Revelation reminds us that we should not be surprised today with the way things are going, when things take a turn for the worst. Why? Because we live in Babylon. And for us to rightly respond to respond faithfully, to remain confident in the victory of God. We have to to look at our current events through the right lens. That's what John's goal is, to give us confidence in the victory of God. 
to give us confidence in God's assured victory over evil. No matter what is going on around us, this is the truth of Revelation. One way that Revelation does this uh, is through these letters from Jesus to the seven churches in Asia Minor, at least seven churches in Asia Minor. The letters uh, are, are written to various churches. That's why it says at the beginning of each letter, it says, to the angel at the church of blank. So it's a specific church that is in mind here. But also, at the same time that it's an individual and church in mind, it's also uh, for all the churches. That's why uh, in every letter, John through, Jesus through John says, hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. Jesus recognizes that we can understand a great deal about ourselves. We can learn a great deal about ourselves by looking at churches that are like us and churches that are not like us. This morning, as we already read, we're going to be looking at the letter to the church in Pergamum. In a lot of ways, the church in Pergamum is like us. And still, in a lot of ways, it is not like us. But in any case, it has much to say to us this morning. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to open up to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 12 and 13 here at the beginning. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan is dwells. My guess is we probably don't know a lot about Pergamum. Uh, It's not on our top 50 Bible sites for us to visit. So let's go ahead and grab our Indiana Jones fedora. Uh, Let's go ahead and grab our bullwhip and and let's look a little bit at uh, at the the Pergamum uh, ruins that we have here. If you want to go ahead and throw that map up, uh, this is a map we're going to be referring to uh, throughout our time the next couple weeks. And as you can see here, uh, Pergamum is uh, about a two-thirds of the way up the coast of Asia Minor. It is about 15 miles inland from the Aegean Sea. It was on a trade route in the first century, uh, but it wasn't a center of economy, of the economy like Ephesus was. There were about 150,000 people that lived in uh, lived in Pergamum during this time, which means that it's not the biggest city around, but it's also uh, still a pretty big city in that day. In about 133 BC, the, uh, the Romans actually named it the capital of Asia Minor. And so there was a province of Asia Minor and that expands uh, for all of modern day Turkey. And this was the capital of that province. And as this provincial head, as a seat of government for Asia Minor, they had the right to exact justice, to carry out justice on the people. They were the, the ones who decided who would live and who would die. And in Roman language, this was called bearing the sword. For someone to have the right to uh, kill, for someone to have the right to sentence someone to death, it was called bearing the sword. The governor here in, in Pergamum bore the sword from the seat of judgment, ruling over the entire eastern half of the Roman Empire, showing Rome's authority over these people. And already, if you look at verse 12, what Jesus says at the very beginning here, he talks about him being the one who holds the two-edged sword. Jesus is looking at the context of Pergamum. He's looking at the situation that they find themselves in and saying, yeah, there are people there who say that they hold the sword. They, they may think that they have ultimate authority, but I am the one who has ultimate authority. Even here at the beginning, Jesus is encouraging his suffering church 
by reminding them of who is in charge. They may live where the one who bears the sword lives, but he is not the true authority. Jesus is the true authority. So Pergamum is a royal city, but it's also a spiritual city. People would come to Pergamum and they'd be in awe of really the the surrounding area and what Pergamum looked like, the majesty of the temples, the government uh, center that was there. And and there was a part of of Pergamum that was considered a religious district. If you want to go ahead and throw that next picture up. So this is a picture of Pergamum. And up here on this ridge at the very top where those ruins are, that's what was considered the religious district. Those were all the temples to the gods that were worshipped in Pergamum. And and it existed hundreds of feet above the rest of the city. It was a reminder of the glory of the gods that were worshipped in Pergamum. It was a reminder of how much uh, more majestic they were than mere humans. It was a very spiritual city. Hundreds of gods were worshipped there. Uh, A couple notable gods that were worshipped there. One was Zeus. Uh, Zeus was the god of justice. He had an altar there that had sacrifices burning on it 24-7 every single year. Offerings to Zeus showing their allegiance to him. Another god that was worshipped there was Dionysus. Dionysus was the god of wine, the god of parties. Uh, He had his own temple there, uh, a big following here in Pergamum. Another one is Asclepios. Asclepios was the god of healing in that day. And actually, if you notice, like on an ambulance, they have the little staff with the snake wrapped around it, if you know what I'm talking about uh, today and, and modern day. That's actually the symbol of Asclepios. This is still the symbol of healing. And so it uh, still carries over into today. Another, so there were a number of gods that were worshipped there, but probably the most important god that was worshipped in Pergamum was the emperor himself. The emperor of Rome was worshipped in Pergamum. This is what's called the imperial cult. Worshipping the emperor was a big deal in that day and age. It was a very big deal in the first century. In fact, to be a good citizen, you had to worship the emperor as a part of your civic duty as someone who lived in the Roman Empire. The emperor was known as Lord. The emperor was known as Savior. He was known as God. This is the context of Pergamum. Pergamum and another church, Smyrna, actually, uh, another city, Smyrna, were actually in competition trying to gain Rome's affection trying to be Rome's number one choice in the eastern side of the empire. And so they would get into building contests of building new temples to the emperor, showing their allegiance to Rome, adding on to the existing temples that were there. No wonder Jesus says that these people live where Satan has his throne. No wonder that they lived where Satan has his throne. Many gods were worshipped and the arch enemy of the people of God The emperor, Caesar himself, was worshipped there. And yet in the midst of all of this, the church existed. The church thrived. Even in the midst of all of this persecution, the church continues to grow. Even in the face of death, the church remains steadfast. Uh, But it's it's important to, to look at what's going on here in Pergamum. See, not only are things bad for the church in Pergamum, But it looks like things are getting worse for the church in Pergamum. Notice how it says that this man named Antipas is murdered. Now, we don't know anything about Antipas. 
We don't know much about him, but we do know uh, a little bit about the context because Antipas is mentioned here. First, we can conclude that uh, martyrdom at this point is rare. Martyrdom, people dying for their faith, is relatively rare at this point in church history. The reason why we can know that is because Antipas is the only one that's named by name in the book of Revelation. If there were more people that were martyred, they probably would have been mentioned as well. Or, or people just wouldn't have been mentioned by name at all. So it's significant that Antipas has been killed for his faith. And also, this sets a dangerous precedent in Pergamum and in Asia Minor. See, Antipas may not have been the first person to die for his faith. That was Stephen. He may not have been the first person to be killed by Roman authorities for their faith. That was James. But he is the first one in this area who has been killed for their faith. It's a very likely chance that Antipas was killed by the decree of the one who bore the sword. And in the midst of this, Jesus is reminding them that they have remained faithful in the midst of this new hostility towards Christians in Asia Minor. See, up to this point, Christians have been ridiculed. They've been beaten. They've been arrested. They've lost citizenship and more, but very rarely have they been killed. But now with Antipas, it seems like the the floodgates are about to open. Actually, if we look at church history, the second century is when a lot of people begin to die for their faith. It looks like Antipas is the first of many to die for their faith. And the reason why I think Pergamum is a little like us is actually because of this. Over the last few years, it seems like the hostility in our culture towards Christianity has increased. You look at at recent surveys and censuses, and and they tell us that the number of people who declare no religious affiliation is increasing. People are no longer saying that they are affiliated with the church. And in fact, they're, they're taking another step further and they're seeing that it's advantageous to actually be hostile to the church. Now, I'm not, you know, one of those people that's going to cry that the sky is falling and say that martyrdom is just around the corner here. It's not. But just like in Pergamum, we live in a culture where the hostility seems to be picking up where it seems to be less advantageous to be a Christian today. It's on a different degree than what was happening in Pergamum, but it's still increasing nonetheless. And as we look at Pergamum, as we look at their faithfulness, we are reminded that we also must be faithful to the gospel. We also must remain faithful to Jesus in the midst of these struggles. Even when we dwell where Satan has his throne. Let's keep reading. Picking up in verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some here, some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Jesus has much to commend the church in Pergamum for. But he also points out that there are a few significant problems there at this church as well. Apparently, there were some people in this church, when they were faced with suffering, when they were faced with hostility, that they they said, you know, I I think there's a way for us to get around this. There's a way for us to to avoid this. If we just sacrifice a couple non-essentials, 
and they began to cross a couple lines and they thought they were remaining faithful to the gospel. But the reality is, according to Jesus' words, they were not. They were not remaining faithful to the gospel. Notice what Jesus says here. He talks about this guy, Balaam. Now, many of us may be familiar with the story of Balaam. It's, it's from the Old Testament. Uh, Balaam was a rogue prophet of God uh, who, who basically hired himself out to anyone who wanted a prophecy. Uh, so he, not exactly the most um, upright figure in Scripture. This king of Moab comes to him. Uh, the king's name is Balak. And Balak comes to him and says, you know, I want you to curse the people of Israel. And Balaam realizes that Israel, they're God's chosen people. He can't really curse them, but he wants the money anyway. And so he says, yeah, let me give it a shot. And so he goes and tries three different times to curse the people of Israel. And every time he tries, he blesses them instead. Now, understandably, Balak is pretty upset with his investment. Uh, he paid for Balaam to curse Israel, and instead he ends up blessing them. And, and so uh, Balaam decides, well, there's got to be a way for, for Israel to get cursed here. We've got we to find some sort of way for them to get cursed, for me to actually uh, be worth this payment that I received. And so he, he thinks through it, and he realizes, I can't curse Israel. But I can get them to do something to make God curse them. And so he tells the king of Moab, he says, you know what, uh, they are consecrated, they're set aside for God of Israel, this God that I serve, I can't curse them, but if you make them go astray, if you make them worship other gods, then he'll curse them for you. So here's what you should do. You should invite them to come worship your gods with you. You should invite them to uh, come be a part of the cult prostitutes as a part of this worship to these other gods. And so that's what Moab does. And Numbers 25 tells us of the tragedy of what happens during this time, of how nearly 25,000 people of Israel die in response to this unfaithfulness, to this idolatry on their behalf. You might be wondering, well, how does this apply to Revelation 2? Notice, uh, I'm going to just read a passage from Numbers 25. This is what the, they are guilty of in Numbers 25. It says this, They invited, the, these invited the people, and the people is, is the Israelites, the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people, Israel, ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. The people of Israel yoked themselves. They began to worship this false god, Baal of Peor. They ate sacrifices that were made to this god of Moab. And by doing so, they connected themselves. They yoked themselves. They said, we are following this god. And what Jesus is saying in Revelation chapter 2 is that the church in Revelation is doing the exact same thing. The church in Pergamum is doing the exact same thing. Thing. They are taking part in the worship of these other gods. They're taking part in the worship of the emperor himself. This is probably what the Nicolaitans taught as, as we see them condemned here. They said that there is a way for us to compromise and to avoid hostility. There is a way for us to rationally partake in these things, to be a good citizen and avoid hostility, and yet still remain faithful to the gospel. But by saying this, by saying that it was okay to eat meat, they were leading people astray. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you are saying, this is so far 
way, way out of my cultural context that I just can't understand a word that's being said here. Maybe, maybe this is just confusing to you. Like, why is it such a big deal to eat meat that is offered to idols? Honestly, in our culture where we eat meat all the time, uh, it's mind-blowing to us. After all, there are Jewish purity laws that have been fulfilled in Jesus. What, why do we have to still avoid meat eaten by idols? Why is this such a big deal to Jesus? After all, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says, go ahead. Go ahead and eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols. So what's the difference between 1 Corinthians 8 and Jesus' words here in Revelation 2? Well, if we look at the context of Revelation 8, or 1 Corinthians 8, excuse me, we see that, that Paul is talking about buying meat in the market. So the way that you would get meat in the first century is you would go to the market and there was meat that was available. Some of it had been sacrificed to different gods, some of it hadn't, and what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 8, he says, hey, when you're at the market, don't worry about it. Just grab, grab some meat, get some protein, and, and go ahead and eat it at home. The gods that has been sacrificed to, it's not that big of a deal. You're not participating in the worship to these gods. It's not that big of a deal. Just grab your meat, eat it at home. But then he says right after that, if someone in your home is eating with you and says, hey, I think that's been offered, that's been sacrificed to a god, then what Paul says is we're supposed to stay away from it. We're supposed to stop eating it. Because by doing so, we begin to worship these false gods. See, in Revelation chapter 2, I think that's what they were doing. They were participating in these parties that were being held. That was the primary way that you ate meat in the first century as a part of this large gathering, these large festivals. And these festivals were done in honor to the gods of those days. They were done in honor of the emperor, of Zeus, of Dionysus. These are all times of worshiping these false gods. And what the people in Pergamum were doing, they were were participating in this party. They were participating in the worship of these gods idols. They might have rationalized and they might have said, well, we're not actually worshiping the emperor. We're just trying to get uh, in. We're trying to reach people for Jesus. But the reality is Jesus looks at them and says, you are worshiping false gods. You are not worshiping me. You are rationalizing your worship of others. And I'm going to be honest, when I read Revelation 2, I come away completely convicted. I come away completely convicted because God has such higher standards of holiness than I often hold myself to. There are so many times where I worship other gods. There are so many times where I rationalize my compromises of the gospel. There are so many times where I say it's not really that big of a deal. There are times where I say, well, I'm still committed to Jesus and and these things are part of my freedom in Christ It's a partial commitment to God. It's a partial commitment to God on my half, and God is not amused with partial commitment. God is not thrilled with partial commitment because partial commitment is idolatry. It's the worship of other gods. Wesley Hill, uh, in his book, Washed and Waiting, he he describes this well. Uh, he, he's talking about how in his own struggle with holiness, he's read this man named Gerard Hopkins, who is a Jesuit priest. And he says this, 
Hopkins knew better than most that God isn't tame or safe. True, he is merciful, but his mercy has sharp edges. God judges sin, transforms sinners in a way that often feels as if it's ripping apart our deepest selves. Hopkins also knew that even on our loneliest roads, when the valleys are so shadowed that the day feels like night, God is watching. God is rejoicing over every inch gained, gazing down as the author who cares about every twist in his story. I love that quote. I think it's so powerful, especially there at the very beginning where he says, true, he is merciful, but his mercy has sharp edges. His mercy has sharp edges. See, when we find ourselves faced with gospel compromise, when we rationalize what we're doing with our lives, things that might not be honoring to Christ, Christ is saying, you know, growing in holiness is painful. It feels like you're getting ripped apart on the inside at times. But it's important. Because Jesus' desire for his people is so great. Jesus desires that his people in Pergamum would be like him. He desires that they would be like him so much that he rebukes something that might seem like a small area, but it is anything but small because they have compromised the gospel. Maybe we've done the same thing today. Maybe we have compromised our faithfulness to the gospel today. Maybe it's through an unintentional drift, or maybe it's through an intentional, deliberate decision. Maybe some of us here worship the modern-day Zeus. We worship law and order in addition to Jesus. We have an unquestioning allegiance to a political party, despite times where that party stands as a mockery of the gospel. We rationalize it. We say that we are okay. But if we never disagree with a political party, which remember is a part of this Babylon that we live in, then we have perhaps compromised our faithfulness to the gospel. Maybe some of us worship the modern day Asclepios, the God of healing in addition to Jesus. We look to the American dream for our safety, for our security, for our hope, and for our satisfaction, and that American dream is choking out a passion for God. Instead of having this desire for health, safety, and security placed in God's hands, trusting Him, we worship at the altar of Asclepius, the American dream. Maybe some of us here worship the modern-day Dionysus, the God of partying and wine. Maybe we've compromised our personal holiness We've compromised our desire or for a desire to have a good time and to fit in. We lower our expectations of what we should be like, of what we should expose ourselves to as Christians, and we rationalize it away. We worship, we worship Dionysus. And still others of us may be guilty of worshiping the modern-day imperial cult, cultural affirmation, 
This past week, I thought of a great example of this. I was preparing for this study, and this past week was the ESPYs. I don't know how many of you are aware of what those are, but it's like ESPN's sports awards show. And I don't really follow it, but I, but I, do, I don't watch it, but I check up to see who won different things. And they have this award for courage that is given out each year, and Bruce, Caitlyn Jenner, um, is the one who received this award for courage. Uh, Jenner, as you are probably aware, is the new face of the transgender movement here today. And, and Jenner gives this uh, talk, this speech, this acceptance speech. And afterwards, everyone in the crowd stands up and starts giving her a standing ovation. And there were a number of Christians in the audience and began to wonder. Will they stand up? Will they give Jenner a standing ovation? Will they worship alongside the imperial cult? Will they fit in? Will they conform with the rest of culture? It's the modern day imperial cult, cultural affirmation, cultural acceptance. All of us, in some way or another, have likely compromised our faithfulness to the gospel. Jesus is not fooled. He knows that the temptation to compromise in the face of hostility is great. And yet that's why he calls his church to repentance in these final few verses. Revelation 2, 16 and 17. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except for the one who receives it. Jesus, after he points out the gospel compromises of his people, gives them an unconditional call to repentance. He says, leave behind what you have once done and follow me. Repent of your ways and come to me. And if you don't, Jesus gives them a warning. See, many of that day had, had compromised their faithfulness to the gospel in order to avoid the sword. And yet Jesus says here at the very end of this letter that he is the one who bears the two-edged sword. He is the one who is coming. And if you have compromised to escape the sword, you will face a far greater sword. The sword of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, the only source of true authority. Friends, God is not afraid to use harsh, loving discipline for his people who turn their back on the gospel. This past week, I actually uh, read a story of a man who, who had done that. He had turned his back on the gospel. He, he had turned his back on Christ. He knew what he was supposed to be doing, and yet he decided to, to go down this road anyway. And God brought into his life painful circumstances to get his attention, to call him back to him because Jesus cares deeply for his church. He cares deeply for them, too much for them to be worshiping false gods, to be chasing after things that compromise our faithfulness to him. 
repent. And then Jesus closes in verse 17 with what will happen if we do repent. That's very, very good news for us. First, he points out that we will be provided for. That God will provide for us if we follow him. Notice what it says in verse 17. It talks about this hidden manna. Now, manna in the Old Testament was the way that God provided for his people, Israel, while they were in the wilderness during a time of hardship and struggle. And what Jesus is saying is that in the same way God provided for his people in the Old Testament, so also he will provide for the church today. He will provide for you in the midst of difficult times. Remain steadfast. There is no need to compromise the gospel. God will provide. Notice what else he says will happen. He says that he will give them a new name. That's an interesting concept. Uh, In the first century, names were not just a way of identifying people, but they were actually a way for uh, you to sum up your entire being. So if you look in scripture, there's Barnabas. Barnabas means son of encouragement, and that's a pretty good description of Barnabas. If you look at scripture, it sums up who he is. Peter means rock. Again, a wonderful description of who Peter is. He is strong and steadfast, and also he is really, really stubborn. He is a rock. Jesus is another example of this. Jesus, Yeshua is his name, which means the Lord will save. A person's name sums up who they are. And what Jesus is saying here is, he's saying, you know what, you are given a new name. You are given a new life, a new creation. You are a part of my new creation. In the first century, people thought that if you knew someone's name, then you could exercise authority over them. What Jesus is saying is no one knows your true name. No one can exercise authority over you except for me. You can remain faithful because I am with you. Jesus' message here is clear. Repentance, although difficult, is worth the cost. That's really what this entire letter is all about. The cost of gospel faithfulness is great, but the cost of gospel compromise is infinitely greater. The cost of gospel faithfulness is great. It will cost you a lot to remain faithful to Jesus as you follow him. But it is nothing compared to the cost of compromising the gospel. Ask yourself which gods you worship in addition to Christ. And repent. Cling to the gospel alone no matter how much it costs you. Because Jesus desires after you. As we close, I just want to point out one thing that we skipped over. Uh, Jesus, he mentions that those who overcome will be given a white stone. And that white stone is where their name, this new name is written. What's the significance of this white stone? What's the significance of this this idea? Uh, In the first century, white stones were used for many different things. But I think there's one particular use that is in view here. White stones were used in trials. When you were declared guilty, you were given a black stone. You were condemned to death, you were given a black stone. It's very possible that Antipas had been given a black stone before he had been put to death. 
It's very likely that many in the church in Pergamum worried about receiving that same black stone, a sign of their own death. But to those who are innocent, they will receive a white stone. It is a sign that they are not condemned, that they are free from the pain of the law. A white stone was very good news indeed. And that's the good news of the gospel, that each and every one of us deserved a black stone and actually received a black stone. We're condemned to death in God's eyes. And yet it was in Christ that we have received a white stone, that we are considered innocent in God's eyes. Not because of anything that we have done, but it's only because of the loving, strong, sometimes painful grace of God. And it's through this declaration of our innocence, this white stone, which declares our innocence, that we are able to remain faithful to God. That we are able to remain faithful to the gospel, not compromising in anywhere. No matter how hard our times are, no matter how hostile the culture is. Friends, God offers you and has given you a white stone, reminding you of what Christ has done for you, reminding you to be faithful to the gospel. Let us repent of our worship of false gods and follow him alone. Let us repent of the ways that we have compromised the gospel and remain faithful to him alone. For the cost of of gospel faithfulness is great, but the cost of gospel compromise is infinitely greater. Let's pray. God, we thank you for what you have done for us through Jesus. We thank you that you declare us innocent, not because of anything we have done, but because of what you have done on our behalf. And Father, we ask now that you would help us to remain faithful to you. God, that the words to the church in Pergamum would be a reminder, a calling to love you wholeheartedly, to cast aside other gods. And God, I pray that you would give us wisdom, you give us insight to identify those in our lives, to not compromise the gospel, but to worship you and you alone. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.